Welcome to the Cliveden Literary Festival, the newest books and debate festival in Britain. My name is Anne McElvoy. I'm a columnist and broadcaster, and this is our Cliveden podcast. We have exclusive access for you, a peek at the behind-the-scenes life of the festival, catching up with some of the famous names in history and fiction writing who are our guests. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. It was just born, formed. Certainly the most extraordinary thing I've ever been part of. I really feel the weight of history. And so much of what has driven British history is in the bricks and mortar of this magnificent house. And I find it very humbling. You come back again and again, don't you, to the swimming pool. It almost brought down a government. I mean, how extraordinary. I've been lucky enough to hang around the green room in the magnificent setting of Cliveden. It's long been a sanctuary for lovers of literature and debate. We'll also be dropping in on the glamorous, yes, even racy side of the famous house and its history. Some of the people appearing here include Robert Harris, Andrew Roberts, Lady Antonia Fraser, Howard Jacobson, Ruth Rogers and Simon Sharma. First, though, someone who's dashing around making it all happen, Natalie Livingstone. First Lady of Cliveden these days and Chairman of the Festival. It's actually been a long journey. It's been a five-year journey. In April 2012, my husband became involved with Cliveden and I came to visit Cliveden with completely fresh eyes. And I was inspired to write my book, The Mistresses of Cliveden, the previously unheard of women in Cliveden's past, with the exception of Nancy Astor. When I was delving into the history of Cliveden, I was very much expecting to find giants of British history. I thought I'd find Queen Victoria. I thought I'd find Winston Churchill. But what I wasn't expecting to find was giants of literature from Alexander Pope to Jonathan Swift to Tennyson to George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, J.M. Barry, Rudyard Kipling. The list goes on and on and on. And my aim for this festival is very much to evoke the spirit of these great writers. You've got a big cast of people here, some of the most famous names. And I go to a lot of festivals. I do a lot of broadcasting from festivals. You've got great names from literature, from history, from biography. But this is also a place public are, are welcome to come. You know, you want it to be a festival that reaches outwards. It's it's an event. It's an occasion. It's it's a real day out. And I know it's expensive and I know it's an indulgence and a luxury. But Cliveden is indulgent and Cliveden is a luxury. I really want every single guest who comes here to have a wonderful experience from the Fortnum and Mason picnic to the Tattinger champagne. I want it I want them to revel in the whole experience of Cliveden. Let's talk a little bit about your your book because you're not just the glamorous chatelaine of Cliveden. You really have put in the work. If you had to choose one of your favourite mistresses from Cliveden, where would you go? Well, that's a really difficult question to ask. It's like asking which one of your children is 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 your favourite. Um, every time I was writing about one of the women, I was completely enthralled to her until I found myself enthralled to the next woman. However, you know, I I became absolutely fascinated with Nancy Astor. It was a real journey of discovery for me because I only knew about her from looking at the John Singer Sargent painting and and knowing that she was the first woman to take her seat in the Houses of Parliament. I didn't have an idea about how bigoted she was. I didn't have an idea about her views. I didn't have an idea about what kind of mother she was. So it was a fascinating journey of discovery for, for me. And you tell these stories, warts and all, you know, you haven't come here to whitewash parts of the history or the characters that maybe were a bit pernicious or even rackety. There is a long and diverse history to Cliveden. 
Well, I, I think that the whole point of history, what makes hi- history fascinating and, and, and intoxicating is that there are, there are warts and all, and you mustn't gloss over the, the, the bad bits in the same way you mustn't lied over the good bits it's it's a combination it's of, of all the the different elements that that create humanity and, and the human story and Clifton is no exception good morning welcome to Clifton we have talks in the great hall over here and the clock tower marquee on the lawn here's your program and here's your bag. Hampers are available for collection from the Fortnum and Mason Marquee. And the bookshop is located behind you underneath the clock tower. Hope you have a fantastic day. Welcome to the inaugural Cliveden Literary Festival. Can I introduce John Preston interviewing Howard Jacobson? Welcome to you all and thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Now, doubtless, there will be many fascinating discussions over the course of this weekend, but I don't think there'll be one quite so enticingly titled as this, Living in the Age of Pussy. Pussy is Howard's latest novel. It's a satire about Donald Trump. I woke up on the night of the election, in the middle of the night. You know, sometimes you wake up um, and you know something terrible has happened. I'd grown up in a very superstitious family, and I was was always told that when your great-aunt so-and-so, so-and-so, died, my mother always said this, you would would know it. You'd hear the call, the call, and Howard, Howard. (laughs) Well, this was a call from humanity. Howard, Howard, I'm dead. And I woke up in the middle of the night as though this terrible thing was sitting on me, and I thought, and learned that he'd just won. And my, and my wife, I woke my wife up, and, and she saw the state I was in, and she said, you're going to have to do something about this, because I'm not yeah. sure I can live with you. I'd never been here before, but I'd heard of it and thought it was fascinating, and I think it's wonderful. And one of the things that's been lovely about being here, when I spoke, I kicked the festival off. There was an honour. I was the first person speaking at the festival. Ten o'clock in the morning on the first day of this festival, of its first, of its birth... Loads of people were here. There was an atmosphere. It felt like a festival that had been going years. I've been to festivals that have taken 25 years to get to this point. It was just born, formed. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. Certainly the most extraordinary thing I've ever been part of. So I was delighted by it. Of course, it helps to be in such a wonderful, sylvan and extravagant and at the same time notorious place. You've not only got the countryside, the beauty and the peace of the countryside, you've got this kind of the notorious history of the place. And I rather like that meeting of, you know, wickedness and calm. Andrew Roberts, Clifton's been a lot of things in its time. It's also a very large present with a bow on top. <laughs> it's a most extraordinary thing that there hasn't been a literary festival here before. This house is so bound up with literature. Great writers coming here really since the 18th century, especially obviously in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, books and Clifton have gone together naturally, and now we've actually put them together, and it's Who extraordinary. Who might I have encountered if I'd, I'd come here a different century, different decade? 
Swift and Pope came here. In the 1930s, you had George Bernard Shaw, uh, Winston Churchill. Yeah, there's something about a very nice house with big gardens. It does attract writers, doesn't it? it she does. says, looking meaningfully at Andrew Roberts. And there's also the sex and scandal side, of course, um, as well. And it's not just the Profumo affair. There was just endless numbers of other affairs going on for literally two and a half hundred years. And you can imagine Alexander Pope having great fun with that or inspired to some of his more waspish reflections on society by that kind of gathering, right? It's totally made for satire. And when you also think that this is basically, this literary festival is basically also a love token given by a rich and successful man to his beautiful and brilliant wife, I think that fits in beautifully with the whole Cliveden ethos. That's Ian and Natalie Livingston you're talking about. They have set up this festival. They are now here at Cliveden. I came up with the idea, presented it to uh, Natalie, and Ian immediately um, got it. He, he got the whole idea. The wonderful thing is, of course, there are throughout history, you know, rich and successful men have been very generous to their wives. One thinks of the Taj Mahal, although uh, admittedly she was dead, and one thinks of... Uh, what a of, happy example. Precisely. You think of all these uh, other things that men give their wives, boring things, you know, like uh, diamonds and cars and yachts. I mean, so predictable. How much more love is it to give your wife a literary festival? I mean, that really, I think it's the, just the best, sexiest present that anyone could ever give anyone else. When you walk around Cliveden and you've got your biographer's eye out, what are the little details that leap out at you from its history? You come back again and again, don't you, to the swimming pool. I mean, that is the swimming pool where Christine Keeler got out of the pool in her bikini, was seen by uh, John Profumo, uh, Minister of War at the time, and it almost brought down a government. I mean, how extraordinarily fantastic is that? I had to ask you that because I've, I've got a, a bet on with our producer that we're going to talk to one male midlife historian who is not going to cite the swimming pool <laughs> and the bikini. Well, it's not going to be Christine. me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Imaginations that are just running right. And there's, there's me standing here saying, have you seen the fantastic clock tower with the beautiful Baroque gold detail? But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. mines are elsewhere. with the best-selling author Robert Harris. Robert, we've just enjoyed your discussion of that fateful year, 1938, linked to your latest novel, Munich. And there is a connection, isn't there, between that giddy, perilous world of the late 1930s and Cliveden? Yes, very much so. Neville Chamberlain and his wife were great uh, lovers of country house life and uh, often came to Cliveden, as did the Foreign Secretary Halifax. And it was in Cliveden that uh, Halifax met Adam von Trott, who was a model for the young German character in my novel. Adam von Trott was a great friend of David Astor, the son of Nancy Astor, who was, who was born and brought up here in Cliveden. They travelled together to Berlin, and David Astor and uh, Adam von Trott went and looked at Sachsenhausen concentration camp just before the war which was an incident that I uh, incorporate in this novel and uh, Von Trott also met Chamberlain as a result of meeting Halifax here in Cliveden which was you know notorious made notorious as a centre for appeasement I think very unfairly actually but uh, it certainly became synonymous with it. Why was it synonymous? Was it because that was the spirit of the age in those circles or were there a certain group of people who were more inclined to think that way that someone like Von Trott would be attracted to as a high-ranking German diplomat? 
Well, I think the Cliveden set was an invention of Claude Coburn, the journalist, and uh, a magazine called The Week, which he published in the 30s, which had a small circulation, was very influential. And it played into that idea of uh, the conspiracy theory, essentially, which surrounded a lot of, uh, still surrounds a lot of politics today. I don't think it really stacks up. I'm sure there were other country houses and other aristocrats a great deal more pro-Nazi and pro-German than the Astors were. It was simply the way of life in those days. And, of course, Cliveden is not very far from Chequers, and at weekends people left London and met and talked over dinner. But I think one can uh, exaggerate its, its part in that history, actually. I'm interested in the book not only, of course, because of the German history and the tragic history of the 20th century that you delve into in a moment when it could have gone a different way, but you do like the spirit of the age. You do like genius loci, and Clifton's very good on that, isn't it? We're looking at a walled garden here and at a clock tower. We could be sitting here discussing Munich 1938, and it wouldn't look too different. No, absolutely. I mean, my great pleasure as a writer is to take places and to imagine myself in them, and I find no difficulty in imagining Neville Chamberlain's car driving, pulling up here. Very, He, he never worked, took private secretaries with him at weekends. He insisted on being on his own. So he would have arrived, just him and his wife, possibly, I suppose, the detective and the driver. That's all there would have been. He was not naturally a friend of uh, Nancy Astor's. He came to like her. He said that uh, she had a kind of childlike honesty, which which he couldn't help but like her. And she was certainly a very staunch supporter of his. And uh, yes, I can imagine the scene here um, quite easily. And of course, the peace and the tranquility and the sense of order, uh, the contrast between that and what was happening on the continent must have been, given all the gatherings here, a sense of uh, menace being held just at bay. Touching on your past as a political journalist, you're not old enough to have been writing about the Profumo scandal, but it's also a period that interests you a lot, isn't it? Yes, and um, again, another scandal that, you know, that when you look at it, of course, there wasn't really that much of a scandal there, in truth. It was all manufactured just to sell newspapers. And I know, I know you'd be horrified. And of course, leapt on by the Labour Party, trying to find some really fairly spurious national security angle to the whole thing but again of course um, I've sat around the swimming pool at Cliveden I've been here as a paying guest I think it's the sort of place where you can have a dream you know you can dream of peace in Europe and uh, you can dream that you can have an affair with beautiful call girls as Minister of Defence and get away with it we'll leave you to your daydream thanks very much Robert Harris The journalist and writer Victor Sebastian and I have retreated clink to the tea room. Here we go. Afternoon tea at Clifton. What could be nicer? But for a particular reason, Victor, as well as writing big history books, a recent one on Lenin, has also been a journalist of many years standing. I think you interviewed Mandy Rice-David. I interviewed her twice, actually, and I was thinking of her quite fondly because I have a room here at, at Magnificent Clifton with a view of the famous swimming pool where Mandy Rice Davies and um, Christine Keeler and um, the others in the Profumo scandal were cavorting. Um, and so I, so I was absolutely thinking, and as I was watching other people swim, I was thinking of, of, of my interviews with, with um, Mandy Rice Davies. It must have been in the late 1970s. And she had a, um, a play on, and it was a very, very bad play and a very unsuccessful play 
whereas she, in fact she'd made a great success of her life living in, in Israel and made quite a lot of money um, in nightclubs and in, um, yeah, nightclubs. I'm, I'm not quite sure how salubrious those nightclubs might have been, given her reputation, but they, they were very popular nightclubs and in property. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, about Clifton and particularly what was known as the Perfumo scandal that there's involved in it because it came rather glamorous and sought after figures, although at the time it was seen as a scandal that rocked the British establishment. Absolutely. And the, 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 the one that, that didn't come out, the two that didn't come out very well of it, was poor Stephen Ward and Christine Keeler, who were at the very, very heart of it. Whereas Mandy Rice... The Rice reputation Davies, of society osteopaths <laughs> never really recovered. No, I'm, I'm sure I... I yes, I, I wouldn't know about that. And Mandy Rice Davis came out of it very well. And of course, the the most, probably the most famous quote um, from the entire um, Perfumer scandal when someone claimed that she'd had an affair with Bill Astor, who was one of the owners of this house at that time, and he denied it in court. And then she said outside court, well, he would, wouldn't he? And that became um, an absolute, you know, the by-by word. It was a very, very clever quote. And indeed, she was an incredibly she was a very clever woman and I tried to draw her out on the perfumer but this was the late 70s when she had actually built a career trying to downplay it a bit but she did say she remembered Cliveden there's an extraordinary sense of place here which is, is interesting almost everyone who is a historical writer we were talking to Robert Harris just be, before you and, and others have mentioned is that it feels like a beautifully kept modern hotel but in the details I'm just looking around the walls here the sort of gilded panels the, the candelabra you, you can feel yourself back into a, a time when the country house life was really rocking Oh, that's, um, absolutely, and is, it might have been in the it might have been in the sixties. It still is. It still is now. I was just at a talk with Andrew Roberts and Simon Seabag Montefiore talking about leadership and all that, and uh, just admiring it in a, in a room, admiring a um, a marvelous sergeant portrait of of, of Lady Astor, that oh, famous that, fam that, that famous port that famous portrait. And oh, I, and as a biographer, a historical biographer, it's sort of catnip, isn't it? Because you, you can see traces of what it is you've come to look at in every room that you go Absolutely. into. Absolutely. And, and as, as you look out over that swimming pool, as you said, it rocked the British establishment. It created also a new breed of political satire. Yes, yeah, that's you very know, true, privatized, actually. Privatized and, and, and programs, you know, the original one was called That it Was the Week. Some of the that reverence. was the week that was. Um, and, you know, there have been many, many since, but that was one of the first, it was the first TV satire program. And the whole of political life changed. I mean, I was very young. I mean, I was uh, clearly, a few years clearly. old. Um, but, it, yeah, it changed political life totally. You're listening to the Clifton Podcast. I'm Anne McElvoy, bringing you a special show from the inaugural Clifton Literary Festival. Amanda Foreman, historian of note, is, is with me now. You wrote a biography, I think, which had some bearing on Clifton, so remind us what that is. 
I wrote a biography about Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, who was a great 18th century Whig hostess and very much a political mover and shaker. And what's so marvellous is that her granddaughter, who was very much a chip off the old block, also known as Georgiana, married the Duke of Sutherland and was a chatelaine of Clifton. And that was when, roughly? So we're talking the mid-19th century. And this particular Georgiana just was a powerhouse for women's rights, anti-slavery, abolitionist. And so she really turned Clifton into the epicentre of liberal politics. That's very interesting. A lot of people have underlined a conservative link, or they've talked about the establishment establishment a lot when we've been talking uh, here today, of course, leading up to the Perfumo affair. But you see it very much through the prism of liberal and Whig history. Yes, I do. I, I think that one shouldn't tar a particular house with one brand of politics. And particularly Cliveden has seen many different iterations. And uh, what's marvellous and exciting about this house is how redolent of British history it is. We've talked a bit about genius loci and the sense of place. How does it come across to you? When I come to one of these great houses like Cliveden, I really feel the weight of history and how individuals can drive politics and great events. And so much of what has driven British history is in the bricks and mortar of this magnificent house. And I find it very humbling. You said something on your way in when you were just chatting to a friend about your perfect or near perfect weekend. What would it look like? Well, my perfect weekend would be to stay in a beautiful house that is redolent of history, that has extraordinary food, terrific wine, all my favourite friends and people I admire, and we would spend the whole time talking books together. Sounds perfect for the Cliveden Festival and a couple of random podcasters as well, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yours especially. (laughs) Thanks very much, Amanda Foreman. Thank you. Daisy Goodwin, we just bumped into each other. Daisy is creator of Victoria, the ITV drama, highly successful, much garlanded. And we were standing in front of a portrait of one of the ladies of the house. So I asked you if she had a connection to Victoria. And hey, presto. Yes, she is Harriet, Duchess of Sutherland, who viewers of the show will know is a key character in Victoria's court. She was... Victoria's best friend um, in real life. In my series, she has a slightly tragic love affair with Albert's brother, Prince Ernest. I'm afraid I've taken a huge dramatic liberty there because, in fact, the real Duchess of Sutherland was a very pious woman who was extremely faithful to her husband, George, right up until his death in 1861. So apologies to the to the Sutherlands for that, for disturbing Harriet Shade. But I can say that Margaret Clooney, who plays Harriet, Duchess of Sutherland, looks remarkably like the portrait that is here in the blue dining room because they both have very long dark hair and soulful brown eyes. So there is some similarity. She's a quintessential long, tumbling, locks, Victorian beauty. What's the relationship with Victoria like? Her relationship with Victoria in real life was very close. They were, I think, very, very, very good friends. And uh, Victoria would often come here to have tea at Clifton. They had a sort of pavilion on the river where she would come from Windsor. She would come up the river and have tea with Harriet here. And I think there's there's a rumour that that's how tea started, you know, with that, you know, to fill in those long hours between your 13-course lunch and your 15-course dinner. You might get a bit peckish in the middle. 
afternoon. It certainly happened here this weekend, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 45 no. minutes without consuming something delicious. Yes. I'm feeling a bit guilty, actually, that I have turned her into a sort of bit of a strumpet. But, you know, that's the demands of TV drama. You trample over reputations in the most shocking way. But uh, the real Duchess of Sutherland was clearly a remarkable woman who presided over the most extraordinary house. Gosh, there are a lot of historians per square metre here. And here comes Simon Seabag Montefiore, so I think we should grab him. Simon, you've been doing a number of events. You've been talking about the Balfour Declaration this morning here at the festival. What's the relevance of a house like this to the era that you've written and broadcast about? Well, it's, it is ironic, and we were feeling that as we sat there talking about the Balfour Declaration, which was really a reaction against anti-Semitism in, in Russia, in, in France, in Germany, but also in Britain. We're in the centenary. Um, we're in the centenary year. So it was like, in fact, almost exactly the, this, this winter is the centenary of 1917, the, the Balfour Declaration. And it is ironic because, of course, this house, in a, in a very different era in the 1920s and 30s, was really the kind of home of anti-Semitism, appeasement, sympathy for, for Nazi Germany, and a certain sort of Little England attitude towards well, towards this question. Do you, do you think that because Robert Harris, we spoke to, said, "Well, you know, the thing is, houses get badged that way, yeah. you know, and that probably there were other places where those sentiments were just very rife anyway in the upper yeah. class, but they attach to some place more than another." Is well, that a fair is, comment? It is a fair comment, and um, it's, it, it, of course, it's, it's very different now. Clifton is, is just amazing, sumptuous, delicious hotel, and has had many other fascinating owners, but you know, one of its manifestations was in the 30s as the home of kind of a certain pro-Hitler appeasement opinion where, you know, where Nancy Astor and the, and, the, and, the, and the people here deliberately used the house and promoted the house as a home for that sort of opinion. You know, the, the editor of the Times was always coming down here. Um, Chamberlain was here the whole time. And it is ironic that you see, you don't see many Neville Chamberlain suites here. There was a, there's a, a lot of Churchill rooms and Asquith rooms and Astor rooms, but there's no, there's no Neville Chamberlain um, suite here, which is kind of weird. I wonder why that is. Yes, yeah, so well, I think the room's named after if you had an affair, but perhaps not so much appeasement. Would you have wanted to sit down for tea with Nancy Astor or do you felt uncomfortable? I think I've had a lot more fun in the 50s and 60s in the swimming pools just outside my window where Christine Keeler was seen swimming. So I think it would have been a lot more fun and there you've got sort of Asquith and Astor and Churchill suites here. Why isn't there a Christine Keeler suite? Because that's the one everyone would want to stay in, right? And certainly every bloke I've spoken to here has said that they wanted to stay in it. Thanks very much, Simon. Thank you, Not something that will ever happen to me at the River Cafe. So, Richard, thank you. Simon Charm and I have just been in a tent together. He's been talking about food with That the, sounds fantastically that does, compromising. Everything which does I'm at Clifton. Thrilled. Yeah, it does at Clifton, doesn't it? We've been in a tent together, yeah, but not overnight during the afternoon, which is even more compromising. I think I should have said a marquee, should I? Here comes yeah, you Rith- should have said a marquee. Here comes Rithy Rogers, who was with, with you. You've been talking about uh, changing trends and how much uh, also River Cafe and what you did with your, your partner in business, uh, now sadly dead, Rose, that you changed something about the way people perceived food, the way they perceived the freshness of food and the regional tradition of Italian cooking. Do you think if you look at a place like this, we're having quite a, a, a sort of like a high tea in the old style, mm-hmm. that there's also something very nostalgic about being able to go back and the days went at five o'clock, we 
filled our plates with scones and jam and cream. Exactly, yes, uh, it's funny because um, Henry Wyndham is the, I think he's the great grandson or the great nephew, a friend of mine, of Nancy Astor. And he sent me her cookbook, <laughs> with it, wondering whether, <laughs> yeah, she, well, it, what, she was not a cook. No. But it was her, her recipes that she wanted her chefs to follow in her handwriting. And it, it is really fabulous to read because and it is the history. Like? Um, some of them were really simple. She was, she was American, wasn't she? So there were a lot of the stories that came from, I think she came from Virginia. So a lot of them had come from her family in Virginia that she brought to this house. A bit of yeah. little rolled up bits of sole in massive yeah, cream sauce. Yeah, a little yeah, bit a, a, yeah. a dish yeah. absolutely impossible to make yeah. in such a way you actually want to eat it. I do know Somebody told me today that you gave her the greatest recipe for souffle. So oh, I would like no, to actually, have that. Please. Yeah, you're, well, you don't need it, but um, no, actually, uh, it's called Simon Chardon's mustardy cheese souffle. Oh. It was in the Guardian. I have more yeah. response in emails yeah. to that than anything else yeah. I've had in my life. Yeah. It was meant for souffle virgins, people who are frightened of yeah. cooking souffles, and I didn't have one, you know, angry response mm. saying ingredients were. Well, if the day job ever goes wrong, you can always get a job with Ruthie <laughs> yeah, in the kitchen. Uh, actually, Anytime. occasionally. I've asked Ruthie, I'm certainly not going to be on a pasta line, but the grill line. She said, absolutely. And then I panicked, thought, no, I can't do this. <laughs> Why would I ruin an evening's cooking for her? But I'm tempted sometimes. I want to ask you, Simon, as a historian, we've, we've asked every historian that we've, we've come across, and there's a fair few, actually, is it's well staffed yeah. with leading historians, this yeah. festival, yeah. is has the house ever figured in anything you've written or anywhere in your life? Uh, no, not in anything I've written, actually, but rather wonderfully, my mother, very unlikely pairing, my mother, Mother knew um, Jack Profumo, knew John Profumo, but not not in his raffish, Keelerish days here. But when he was uh, a mostly redeemed sinner, he was running Toynbee Hall, and she was running an old age center and they kind of bonded it was absolutely so improbable but they were very fond of each other it's like everyone who met somebody else i knew not well but did know him arthur miller there was only one question he really wanted to ask arthur miller but you didn't dare you didn't dare ask it and the same thing was true with profibo yeah, we're leaving that, we're leaving that one to the imagination of we the audience. Are, I think yes. we, we, we probably it's are. It's a grown up audience. Ruthie, what do you feel about that connection of food to place? Because it figures in everything that, that you yeah. write. And how does that, when you come into this, or look at a grand dining room, I know it's a yeah. very different style of cuisine to, yeah. to what you do, but no, I would love how, to have how do you respond to it? Meal. I would love to have a grand meal in this room. I think if I came here, I would want, I would love to see the garden. I think that, I wonder if there's a vegetable garden, because I think that the kitchen garden traditionally in grand English houses was always quite good. Yeah, no, it? wonderful. But the, yeah. the kitchens of grand country houses, I think of rather grim places, yeah. I have to say. They feel like a barracks. Yeah. The division of labor is yeah. so severe. Yeah. The actual hardware, fixtures and fittings are scary and they're meant for the near military precision delivery of meals to people yeah. of whom you were supposed to be slightly, well, more than yeah. slightly intimidated by. Mm. Upstairs, downstairs, you know, the, the, remember, the, that wonderful TV series which introduced yeah. us to the, to the downstairs. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, kitchen, but I think the garden would tell us something and I think that, uh, that's what, you know, what I would like to see. If you were to sit down here, you were asked about your 
fantasy meal, I'd your favourite meal. What would you have? I'd have Simon souffle to start. Definitely. Definitely have Simon souffle. And then after a very rich souffle, I don't think I'd go for that soul that you described, no, but I might have, you could have a grilled Dover soul, couldn't you? You'd have, or, you know, soul manure, that one with the butt, that is delicious. Then but maybe you would kind of die probably, yeah. but I'm rather into butter these days anyway. <laughs> I've rediscovered my inner butter passion. I am back to butter. So I figured out the best way to have butter is to treat it like cheese. So you don't, you grill a piece of bread, Poilin's thin, and then you let it cool because if you put ah. butter on the toast yeah. it melts into it yeah. so you really want it to be like oh, a piece of cheese you'll die probably but it's so good happy. yeah it's we, we, will, we will got to go one day what are you having for your meal you can't have your own souffle I'm going to make you have something else well actually I, this is going to sound terribly suck up but what the hell I would have Ruthie's Papa Pomodoro which yeah. is simple oh. and gorgeous and perpetual summer in one's head and gut yeah. well I think we should after okay. all, all of this we, we, we're ready to eat again we might have a quick cocktail before by the way the, the rather the wicked cocktails, yeah. which I think are definitely a 1930s strength. Thank you very much, Thank Simon you. Ruthie. You. See you later. Thank Catch you later. Catherine Osler, you're contributing editor at the Daily Mail. You're a writer. You've been editor of, of Tatler. So you've got the big journalistic backpack. And I always think, I have to confess, having worked with you, I always thought you get to do those in-depth but quite glamorous pieces. I'm sweating it out at Westminster and you know, talking to, to people in, in sad grey suits. What is it about the glamour of Clifton that would make you want to be involved here? Well, I think, firstly, there's the aesthetics of the place. It's an incredibly unique beautiful, verging on over the top but not quite desperately romantic house in a totally unique setting right on the edge of the Thames with that sort of cliff top that falls away and the incredible garden. You can see it in the shoot, can't you? Do you find, as someone who's laid out more pages and uh, uh, covers than than most of us do in a lifetime, do you find yourself going around thinking this is where I want the lady? Totally, desperately photogenic. You know, inside and out, you've got Madame de Pompadour's you know, dining room, her panels from her chateau transferred to the French dining room. And actually she and Nancy and the Profumo sort of sum it up. The great thing about Clifton is that it's where sex stroke glamour stroke female power meets politics. So it's about the mix, really. And in this period and looking forward with the festival, it's an interesting idea to put a literary festival on top of that history. What do you think someone like Natalie Livingston brings to it in terms of taking that legacy into something that's very forward-looking? I think she's got a very fresh eye in terms of what people are going to find interesting. She's been a journalist and a historian, so I think she can combine the two. She's bringing the past to the present, I think, in the most interesting way. Do you think she's going to end up in one of those huge, long portraits, <laughs> singer-sergeant-style portraits? I <laughs> Lady Antonia Fraser, you're sitting in the green room before your event with Andrew Roberts, but it turns out that you know the house well for a very long time. Let's put it this way. I first came here a very long time ago because Lady Astor, the great Lady Astor, the first lady to take her seat in the House of Commons, she was actually my godmother. My father was at Oxford with Bill Astor and Lady Astor took an 
interesting, bright young men. And my father was then a bright young conservative man, although he changed quite soon afterwards. And therefore, when I was born in 1932, the first child, um, she was made my godmother. What a fantastic godmother to have. What, what, what was she like? Well, I think when you're a child, a fantastic godmother is one who comes by and gives you large amounts of chocolate or cash. It begins with chocolate and it moves on to cash. She did neither of these things. But when I came to lunch here, she took her, uh, with my father, she took a ch little china ornament off one of the shelves behind her and gave it to me. And I've still got it. I have it on my dressing table. <laughs> she had a reputation for... We'd say these days, shooting from the hip, she could be quite outspoken. Was that a side of Lady Esther that you saw? I don't know whether she was outspoken or not, but there was a famous occasion when I was sitting at the huge lunch table, 12 or 13, and pretty nervous and shy, just after the war and wasn't used to places like this and big lunches. And um, she looked down the table and said to me, you're not as ugly as your father, you know. And I was completely taken aback because my father was sacrosanct at home. Nobody talked about him being ugly or beautiful, for that matter. You know, he was just dada. And I didn't know what to do or think. And then David Astor, her son, who was a very kind, helpful man, said, she likes you, you know. And he interpreted it, it's affection. One of the subjects that's obviously been much discussed this week on the, the panels is historians taking apart the Profumo affair and its consequences. And I'm wondering if, as you, you are, as a writer and a historian, who's like a cat who's walked through a lot of these historical gardens of the, the 20th century, did you know the participants? Yes. Uh, um, uh, Jack Profumo uh, was an MP with my first husband, Hugh Fraser, who was also Minister of War at the time of his disgrace. And Hugh was Minister for Air, so they were sort of next in rank. But more than that, um, we had just rented a cottage here at Cliveden, close to Stephen Ward's cottage, which we never inhabited because the disgrace came along. And the last thing an MP of irreproachable um, life like Hugh wanted was to be tangled up in something that was nothing to do with him. I, I met Stephen Ward. It's fascinating. He said he'd like to draw Hugh, which never happened. <laughs> Otherwise, history might be different. And you, you use the word disgrace about uh, the scandal at that time. I mean, did, did it feel that? That's a very strong word to use now. Now, we look back and we sort of, to an extent, wonder what the fuss is about. Do you think that's fair or is that, am I just looking for the present day view? Well, there was a rather funny column by Art Bookfold in, I suppose, the New York Herald Tribune in which he pretended to be um, Jack Kennedy, what the fuss was all about. That's what Jack Kennedy wanted to know. And somebody said, well, Jack Profumo uh, told a lie um, to Harold Macmillan. And Jack Kennedy said, but I tell lies to Harold Macmillan all the time. But I think people focused on the fact he lied to the House of Commons, which he did. But the idea that no one's ever lied to the House of Commons, I mean, in the interest of security, Selwyn Lloyd famously lied to the House of Commons to protect a security operation. I mean, politicians do lie, if you like to put it like that. And I think it was rather hypocritical. Jack Rafumo was a charming man. Everybody thought when he said he hadn't done it, 
everyone knew it was nonsense. And what are you going to talk about today? Um, uh, we're going to talk about my love of history and Andrew Roberts's love of history. As He's I, not going to put you on the spot and ask you to choose your favourite book, is he, like being asked to choose an offspring? My favourite book is the last book I've written, which is My History and a memoir of growing up. And it's about exactly that, my love of history, and how it came about and how it developed. So that's going to be my favourite book for today. There you go. We've got a sneak preview of Lady Antonia's talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, what a fantastic weekend it's been. I think I'm the last person to go and try out that famous swimming pool, so here's my chance. We hope you've enjoyed finding out more about Cliveden. Maybe we'll see you here next year. From me, Anne McElvoy, and our stellar cast here at Cliveden, goodbye. <laughs>